to a Hope 103.2 podcast. You may have heard the not-quite-true story about two American TV evangelists, let's call them Jimmy A and Jimmy B, who decided it was God's will for them to come over to Sydney and set up shop here. They had heard how secular and sinful we were, and they wanted to come and save our collective soul. Unfortunately, 20 minutes short of Kingsford Smith Airport, the plane they were travelling in lost all power to its engines and started careering toward the ground. Jimmy A fell to his knees and cried out, Oh Lord, you know how much these people need my message. Save me. Jimmy B heard this, got to his knees and pleaded, Lord, you know how much they need my message. Save me. The plane crashed three kilometres short of the airport. Whom did God save? Answer, Sydney. Now, I once told a version of this story to a large church on the Gold Coast in Queensland. At the punchline, I got nothing but a few nervous smiles and a large murmur throughout the hall. The rest of the sermon was unusually hard going. It turns out the church I was preaching in was actually part of the worldwide network of the TV evangelist Jimmy Baker. I haven't got an invitation back. In any case, the story usually works in a cheeky sort of way because it taps into the popular cringe people feel, not just about TV evangelists, but about anyone who presumes to try and save our soul. I was first told this story when I was a travelling evangelist, and I've always valued the anecdote as a reminder never to slip into forms of evangelism that are or could appear to be presumptuous and arrogant. For some Christians, this salvation cringe is so keenly felt they avoid getting involved in mission in any overt way. It's not that they lack concern for their neighbours, it's just that they don't want to appear too evangelistically zealous. That's just too high a price to pay. One New Testament text, though, provides the perfect rebuke and medicine for those experiencing the salvation cringe. It offers a rebuke because it makes clear that Christians in general, not just apostles and evangelists, are to seek the salvation of their neighbours. It provides the medicine because it reveals that seeking the salvation of others doesn't involve dying for the sins of the world, as it did for Jesus, or evangelising the known world, as it did for the Apostle Paul. It involves something far less scary, something far more manageable and more basic. It involves a mission mindset. The mindset is beautifully stated in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 31. Here we go. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Notice the logic spelled out here by Paul. Just as I, the apostle, followed Jesus in seeking the salvation of others, so you, Corinthians, should follow me in the same task. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ, he says. Well, in the next two reflections, I want to follow Paul's gospel logic really closely. 
I want to begin with Jesus' mission to save, looking particularly at his friendships with sinners and his death on the cross. And then I want to briefly show you how Jesus' mission to save people influenced the Apostle Paul. And finally, and more importantly for us, I want to explore how we too are to follow the example of the Apostle and the Lord in seeking the good of many so that they may be saved, as Paul says. One evangelist who could never be made the butt of my opening joke is Jesus. The salvation cringe could never be felt about his ministry. And we should remember it's his mission that shapes ours. One of the most striking aspects of Jesus' ministry in its first century Palestinian setting was his regular socialising with the people-classed sinners. Sinners were those in Jewish society who lived outside the laws of the Old Testament as interpreted by the rabbis. They were not all prostitutes and thieves. That would be a caricature. They could just as easily be wealthy businessmen who neglected going to the synagogue or did business with the occupying Romans, as the tax collectors did. They were, if you like, the unreligious in a strictly religious society. Social interaction with sinners, as with Gentiles, was strictly prohibited in Jesus' day. In particular, you were not to share a meal with such people. In ancient societies, eating and drinking were powerful symbols of fellowship. To share food and drink with someone was to identify with them and in some way to endorse them. Jesus, though, flaunted these centuries-old customs. He wined and dined with sinners on a regular basis, so much so that the pious people in his society began to slander him in public. Matthew 11.19 records the slander. Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Let me remind you of a couple more examples from the Gospels. Mark 2 verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Or consider Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. This story is especially interesting. Befriending Zacchaeus and delivering a little sermon in his home are Jesus' final acts before entering Jerusalem for his last week. This passage is a kind of climax to Luke's account of Jesus. It captures all that his ministry has been about for the last three years. Imagine being there that day. The most famous teacher in Palestine invites himself to the home of Jericho's archetypal sinner. Zacchaeus was not only something of a financial tycoon, 
As a chief tax collector, he was also deeply involved with the Romans on whose behalf he collected taxes. But Zacchaeus is so overwhelmed by this strange acceptance from the one rumoured to be the Messiah that right then and there he devotes himself publicly to the path of God. And Jesus responds with what are perhaps the climactic words of the Gospel of Luke so far. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus' mission is stated perfectly here, to seek and to save what was lost. Through his preaching, Jesus declared that salvation. Through his death and resurrection just a week later, he would accomplish that salvation. And through the generosity of his social life, mixing and eating with sinners, he embodied that salvation. Jesus' friendship with sinners gave people a tangible sign of the welcoming grace of God. His questionable dining habits were not merely an attempt to buck the system of his day, they were an illustration of the fellowship with sinners God so keenly desires. To preempt where I'm heading with all this, this is the mission we too are called to. Our entire life, including our social life, should demonstrate the Lord's desire to seek and save the lost. Hope 103.2. Thanks for listening.